You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning and welcome to the Dean's Class. Very glad that you could tune in with us as we continue to walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we find ourselves at chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And as I listened to last week's teaching, I realized I had uh, mindlessly made a mistake and said that it was Jacob who was an administrator over G- over Egypt, when in fact it was his son, Joseph. And uh, adding to my disappointment is none of you said anything. <laughs> Not, yeah, none of you noticed, or if you did notice, you thought, oh, well, I know what he means, uh, but I, I certainly don't uh, begrudge anybody who wants to call in a correction, and, uh, and certainly something like that would be welcome. Uh, but more than that, I hope that the truth of God's Word has settled into your hearts and taken deep root, and that you would uh, rejoice in what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry that God has given us, because that's what Paul was reflecting on last week, was this glorious gospel ministry that he had been given. And if you remember, Paul had started to talk about prayer, but most of your Bibles, I would imagine, have a little hyphen that shows that Paul went off on this uh, side thought, and those are the moments uh, when you know the Holy Spirit is involved, because when Paul does that, it tends to be some of the most profound stuff that he ends up writing. That's certainly true in Second Corinthians, uh, when he begins to talk about whether or not he's going to visit, and then he begins to talk about the beautiful dispensation of the gospel uh, that has dawned upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, we're finally going to get this morning to where he wanted to go in the first place, and where God would lead us and that is to talk about praying for spiritual strength. What is Paul's prayer uh, for the people of Ephesus and for you and for me as far as that goes? So let's go to the Lord in prayer even now. Oh God, we pray that you would give us expectant hearts, that you'd give us eager hearts, that we would crave your word, that we would long for it, and when it is poured out to us, that we would devour it, that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that which you're saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul was diverted, and now he is back to prayer. So I'm going to read this prayer for us. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, and let's, I'm going to go ahead and go back to verse 1, because I think it's important that we see what he was saying. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, in him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I love the fact that in this letter, he begins 
to pray. It's a strange thing. I don't know if you've ever written an email. Uh, Maybe you have, but you've probably been explicit. Here is a prayer that I am praying for you, or you may have passed along a prayer. But imagine if you're in a conversation with someone, and they're talking to you about the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden you realize that they're no longer talking to you, but they're talking about you to God. Uh, That happens to me sometimes where I'll I'll be speaking and realize that this conversation has moved away from declaring who God is in the Lord Jesus Christ to actually addressing God. We were reflecting just this past week on the death of uh, a former assistant of mine, Carol Williams, uh, a really wonderful lady and a character to boot. And as a friend and I were speaking of Carol, uh, we stopped talking about Carol and we started talking to God uh, about Carol. And so maybe you find yourself in that situation, and Paul often finds himself in that situation that his uh, conversations are not just peppered with the Word of God, uh, but also praying to God. And in his prayer, Paul is still dealing with the privileges of Christian service. He's still talking about what it means to be a minister of the gospel and what the Christian life really looks like. Eric Alexander says that the noblest and highest, as well as the most effective way to serve God, is is without any question through the ministry of prayer. This This epistle to the Ephesians, that's hard to say together, this epistle to the Ephesians largely consists of two things. One, preaching the exposition of the Scriptures, declaring who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us, and secondly, prayer. That's really what the epistle to the Ephesians is made up of. In chapter 1, we see that Paul is clearly preaching, but then he ultimately moves into prayer. So in chapter 1, we hear of him declaring who the Lord Jesus Christ is, but then he says this in verse verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. These are the two basic instruments that God employs for the fulfilling of His purposes and the carrying forward of His will, especially within the life of His church. Preaching announces God's plan and prayer releases the power to bring the the plan to fruition. Preaching announces God's plan, and prayer releases the power to bring the plan to fruition. A church must have anointed spirit preaching and spirit-inspired praying. Without them, there's really no church at all. And you notice that Paul moves, as I said in chapter 1, from exposition to intercession or from preaching to praying. He's praying that the truth that he has proclaimed takes deep root into the lives of the believers he's writing to or preaching to. It's not enough for him just to preach, but he's saying in order this to be really effective... I'm going to have to pray these truths into your life. And so if prayer and preaching are the two basic instruments 
that God employs for the fulfilling of His purposes and the carrying forward of His will, it begs the question, what forms your ministry? Now, that's a specific question. What forms your ministry? Are you just content with trying to learn the truth of God and to fill your head with all kinds of orthodox knowledge, but you're completely neglectful of praying that those truths would not only become a reality in your life, but but become a reality in the lives of those whom you're seeking to minister to? Because there's a great danger if you're just trying to fill your head with truth. If you develop all of this right-thinking head knowledge about who God is in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you don't have prayer, it could even be deadly. And the truth is also true not just specifically of your own individual ministry, where you're not only trying to witness to those around you, but are you also praying for them? You know, are you not just talking about your neighbors? Are you not just going through the motions of witnessing to them? Are you also giving them over in prayer? I try really hard uh, to uh, pray not only to those who I'm ministering to and trying to seek them, uh, to see them come to the Lord Jesus, but also praying for people that, frankly, um, I don't like very much. And normally that's because they're awful to me. And being in my position, uh, I'm sure this will come as a shock to you, people will say absolutely crazy things to me uh, that uh, would warrant me wanting to never speak to them again. And yet my calling as a minister of the gospel, to be a steward of His grace, is to minister the gospel to them as well and to not begrudge God's mercy. Because I can easily become Jonah. When God says to Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh, Jonah's great objection is that he's afraid that he's going to go to Nineveh and people will actually be converted. And that's exactly what happens. And Jonah's response to God when he spares Nineveh is, I knew that this would happen. We ought not to begrudge the mercy of God. And so even those that we may not want to minister the gospel to, that's who God is calling us to minister the gospel to. When we need to be given over in prayer to them, And when you begin to pray for your enemies or for people who don't like you and people who are not just hostile to the gospel but hostile to the ministers of the gospel, you find your heart strangely warm toward them because it's very difficult to hate somebody that you're praying for. And so it's not just enough to give a word of condemnation to say that you have your mind set on earthly things, set your mind on heavenly things. That is going to do no earthly good and certainly no heavenly good unless you're also praying for those people. And so if you're sitting back and wondering why you're not able to move the ball or that God is not moving the ball better yet, in the life of an individual, I ask you, are you praying for them? You may have all of the wonderful rational explanations as to why somebody ought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I've never been able to argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. That is a great work of the Spirit of God, as Paul has been talking about all the way up even to now. So specifically, what forms your ministry? Is it formed by preaching and prayer? And it may well be said that if you're simply praying for people, and not preaching to them or sharing God's Word with them, of entering into a word ministry with them, that may also be an explanation as to why spiritually their ball is not moving. 
I often get asked to pray for people, uh, especially immediate family members and close friends. Oh, please pray that God would raise up someone to come and witness to my son or daughter or to my husband. And we all ought to pray that because we know that a prophet is not without honor in their hometown. It's very difficult to minister to those whom we're closest to. It's much easier to minister at arm's length. But nonetheless, are we praying that God would raise up somebody to evangelize them when in fact it may be God calling us to evangelize them? And so rather than saying, God, I sure hope that you bring somebody else into their lives, maybe God is calling you to speak a word into their lives. And so it's not just praying for them, it's also preaching to them. And you understand that when I'm talking about preaching, I'm talking about the wider ministry of speaking God's word to one another, not just the role of the person who stands here and administers God's word, but also the word ministry that you have as a Christian. But more generally, beyond asking what forms your ministry as an individual, what forms your ministry as a church? Now, most of you watching this morning attend the Church of the Advent uh, when you're able to attend, Uh, but some of you, uh, and maybe even most of you listening or watching this morning, don't go to the Advent. You go to another church. And I would ask, what forms the ministry of your church? What forms the ministry of our church here at the Advent, and I think that we do a very good job of proclamation. But if we're honest with one another, are we on our knees? Are we praying? That's the question. Is our ministry not just preaching, not just prayer, but preaching coupled with prayer? A great and vivid illustration of this uh, comes from uh, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, and can be found on page 724. And many of you know this story. It's the Valley of the Dry Bones, and I want uh, to read this passage to you. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. In other words, he's he's calling into the valley, and there are all these bones, and he wants you to know that not only are there bones, but they're dry, meaning they're real dead. They've come apart from one another. They're almost not even recognizable as skeletons. They're strewn about. And God says to me, preach to the bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, or translated differently, spirit to enter you, the very spirit of God to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied. I preached as I was commanded. And as I preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and there before me were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them, there was no spirit in them, there was no life in them. 
Then God said to me, Preach to the Spirit. Preach, Son of Man, and say to the Spirit, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I preached as He commanded me. Or better yet, I prayed as He commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. You can have the most faithful, evangelical, orthodox preaching that the church has ever known, and you can still be preaching to a congregation of some of the best-looking dead people you could ever want in your church. It's not until the Spirit of God moves that life comes into them, that God breathes His breath into them, that He speaks that word of creation when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, as we read about earlier on in Ephesians, that creative word, and the word of resurrection, come out. Does life come into the believer? And so if you want to see the Spirit move, you need to be just as diligent about prayer as you do about preaching. Peter Adam, uh, the great Australian preacher from Melbourne, Australia, I heard him once say that as he approached his later years in life, he finds that he spends just as much time praying over his sermon as he does preparing. Now, most people's, most preachers in Anglicanism that are, rect- are clergy, um, they don't spend much time preparing for their sermons. And what prayer they do pray is, God, please help me. And the time of their preparation and prayer is between the gospel reading and when they actually get into the pulpit. And I'm not saying that to, to besmirch them. That, that's the testimony of many. And if you're a clergyman or, or a preacher listening today, you're going to have to admit that, that there are times when you have given short shrift to preparation, and that may be because of the cares and concerns of ministry have overtaken you. But those of you who are diligent in your study and you're spending uh, hours upon hours of week of really pouring over the text, for every hour that you're preparing for your sermon, are you praying an hour? Uh, That's where I'm convicted. Because if I think that just simply preparing, and of course there's an element of prayer to that preparation of, oh God, please speak to me. But am I not just praying over my preparation? Am I praying over the people who are going to hear the word that I'm going to preach? I think this is why often in churches, you'll sit under godly, faithful teaching for years, maybe even decades, and yet that preaching is still falling upon deaf ears. People have heard the gospel, and yet they're unable to articulate it because they've never heard with spiritual ears. Are you praying for your people? Are you spending just as much, if not more time, as Peter Adam has come to understand, praying over your sermon, praying over the hearers of your sermon as you are preparing for it? Preparation is really important. It is of great importance. It's essential to preaching the sermon. But if you want to see dead people live, pray to the Spirit, God, make these bones live. So preaching and prayer go together. And finally, now we get to (laughs) what Paul wants to say in Ephesians this morning. But I actually want to continue with this a little bit. I I, I just see my notes now. Um, 
when Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, he's saying, this is why I'm praying for you. If you're not a preacher in an official capacity, in the specific sense, not the general sense of every Christian, but the specific sense, I I do want uh, to ask you, are you praying for the preacher? Are you praying for me? Are you praying for those who are in the pews around you? Are you praying for those who you know are listening in on the streaming service? Because it's not just about me praying for them, but it's about you praying for me and praying for those who are also listening. And when you're about to listen to a sermon, do you say to yourself, well, I hope it's a good one. Does your heart sink when you see that a particular preacher is preaching? I kind of hoped it had been the other person. Well, Rather than thinking about it that way, which is rather self-centered, as if my job is to passively listen to whatever it is this preacher is saying. Again, I ask you, are you praying for the preacher? Are you saying, God, may we hear from you today? This is your word, and it comes in power only by your Spirit. Open our ears, Lord, for you are speaking. Amen. Remember, no matter who's up in the pulpit, if that person is God's man, his word is going to go forth and will accomplish that for which God has purposed. Because God can even take Balaam's donkey to preach the truth in an effective manner. And so preachers are simply instruments declaring to you the very oracles of God. And are you praying and listening with an expectant ear? Rather than saying, well, I hope this morning the preacher faithfully preaches exegetically from the Word of God. We've talked about this before, that what we want is for us to be able to follow along in the Bible and to say, ah, I see what the preacher is preaching. I see what God is wanting me to understand in His Word today. If what the preacher is preaching can't be connected to the Bible in any way or whatever it is that they're preaching about, if you didn't hear the the Bible readings, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint what passage they're preaching on. They very well may be preaching from the book of Second Opinion. It may not be heretical. It may even be good godly advice, but our job is to preach the very Word of God to you so that you might be able to comprehend it for yourself, that which the Lord Jesus Christ, or as Paul says this morning, that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the point of it. But not only that the word would be preached exegetically, but that you would listen exegetically. Are you coming ready to listen? Do you have your Bible open? And not just as a form, but so that God's word will make sense to you rather than saying, well, that was a good sermon, saying, I now understand God's word to me better than I did before. Because a real ministry of the Word is not a monologue, but a dialogue. Where the preacher speaks to us, 
and in him, his speaking, it's actually God speaking to us, and our response is to cry out to him. Have you ever had the experience where the preacher is declaring to you the very oracles of God, and you find your heart responding not to the preacher, but to God himself? It's as if the preacher's not even there. You're looking through him at God himself. And that's the experience that Paul is trying to lay out, that in spite of the effective gospel ministry that God has given Paul, his prayer is that I bow my knees on heaven that you may know, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The gospel that he proclaimed, the people in Ephesus who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ through these gospel ministers, do you notice that it's not enough just to stop there? Because one of the sins of, um, that comes about uh, is uh, that many churches uh, will not faithfully proclaim the gospel, and they really could care less about evangelism. In fact, evangelism is a bad word. It's taboo. We don't want to talk about it. And how dare we say that you need Jesus Christ in order to know God? But in the same way, there are many churches that think so long as we can get you into the kingdom of heaven, that's enough. Your ticket's been punched and you're there. But hear how Paul keeps praying the saints on. Now that that you are are, are in Christ that you would continue on, which is why in verse 17, it's kind of a funny line, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But I thought I was already, Christ was already in my heart, that he was already dwelling in me. What do you mean that he would reside in my heart? Well, what he's saying is that when you enter into the kingdom of God, that's not it. You continue on. And are we not only praying people for people that they might enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but once they've entered into a relationship, are we praying them on? Because frankly, I found in the Christian life that's the hardest part. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower. You know, the, the seed being scattered and then all of a sudden the, the, some of it grows quickly, but because it hasn't taken deep root, it's, it's scorched. And some of it takes root and grows, but the weeds, the cares of this world, choke it out. If we see the initial growth, do we say, well, all right, it's set, and then we walk away from it? No. Paul is saying that we need to be praying for one another through the difficulty of the race. If you need some encouragement in this area, go look at Hebrews chapter 11. Are we rooting one another on? I mean, when I first became a believer... That may have actually been one of the easiest parts of my walk. I was ready to charge hell with a water pistol. I was devouring God's Word. It's it's down the road when my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ became much more difficult, and I began to have misgivings, and I needed other believers to be praying for me and speaking God's Word to me. And so even the people that you sit next to normally in pews, if and when we're able to gather together again, and again, and I hope that you're already able to safely gather in smaller groups, if you're doing that, are you speaking words of encouragement and edification to one another as well as praying for one another? Because that's what Paul's doing here in the tail end of chapter 3. 
Now, you notice that he says here, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's talking about the posture of prayer. But I don't want you to think that posture is what is most important. You know, here at the Advent, we have people who come from all different kinds of traditions. In fact, the overwhelming majority of people who come to the Advent did not grow up in an Anglican church. Uh, They grew up in another tradition. And unfortunately, when they come and they experience the liturgy for all of its beauty and that which they love, they feel this overwhelming pressure to conform to certain patterns of behavior, especially physically. Because they think, well, if I don't kneel, then somebody's going to think I'm not really a Christian. But all of those things, as they're good and of value in and of themselves, you know, why do we kneel to pray? Because it's a posture of showing our humility before God as we approach His throne of grace. We fold our hands because uh, during uh, other times in our lives, we're putting our hands to work, and yet now we've folded our hands to demonstrate that we have put away our hands and our focus is directly on God. And yet, sometimes those postures can be a cover for the reality that we're not focused. For some people I speak to, they say, when I close my eyes to pray, my mind doesn't orient itself toward God. It begins to wander in all kinds of awful directions. And yet, if I pray with my eyes open, I'm afraid that people will think that I'm not really praying. But friends, Paul is not saying you have to bow, you have to kneel, you have to fold your hands. What is the orientation of your heart? It's not the outward. It's the inward that God is concerned with. And frankly, that's what we should be concerned with as well. Posture is not as important as our orientation to the will of God. And if those things are a distraction to you, do away with them. Don't worry about other people judging you because they're not judging you by a biblical or godly standard. They're judging you because you're not conforming to everyone else's behavior. And that's, if we're going to conform to anything as the body of Christ, we're conforming to the Word of God. We're orienting ourselves toward His will, not the will of others. Now, we all have our preferences, by Episcopal standards, the, the Church of the Advent is not a very high church, and I know that, that many of you would prefer that we do things in, in another way, uh, but that doesn't make you any more Christian, and doing them doesn't make you any less Christian. But here Paul is saying that the issue is not the posture outwardly, it's your inward posture. Have you, are you bending the knee of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what matters. That's what matters. Now, um, the fatherhood of God I'm going to get to later on actually in Ephesians chapter 5 because it's a similar comparison that God makes uh, to marriage. But I want to just finish up now with what exactly He is praying for. Well, already we know that that He's praying for them because He loves them, because they're a product of His ministry. But what is He praying for them? That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now, this is counterintuitive. Again, yes, we're praying the saints on. 
We're not just saying, oh, now that you're a Christian, I can stop praying for you. But in fact, we need to continue to pray for one another. And um, that, that God would continue to find uh, a place, a home in your heart. But notice that he says, I'm praying for you, it, for you in your inner being. That you might be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Because most of us, when we pray, are almost always motivated by the outer man. Isn't that true? When do you find yourself most? When do you find yourself praying most of all? When your outer self is affected. When someone has fallen ill. When someone is undergoing difficulty. When you desire something to happen in your life or around you. Well, that's actually not what Paul is, Paul's not praying for that. And absolutely, we should pray for those who are sick. We should pray uh, for, uh, for certain circumstances to come about, or even for us to be delivered uh, from uh, this pandemic that is COVID-19. But that shouldn't be the singular focus of our prayers, that actually what we should be praying for is the inner being of individuals. And yet I run into ministries all the time that are constantly focusing on the outward to the neglect of the inward. There was a church that was celebrating a significant anniversary not that long ago, and signs went up in people's yards. And I was very curious by the way that they were wanting to note this big anniversary, because on the sign it said the name of the church, and then it said, serving our community for over 150 years. And I thought, well, that sounds like a grocery store or, or a shop or, or, or something along. Serving, it's, all, it's great that you would serve your community for over 100, 150 years, but what about feeding people's souls? What about proclaiming the gospel for 150 years? Because if you're focused more on the outer person, if you're focused more on the outer being, then your ministry is going to be reduced to platitudes. You know, we ring our bells every noonday here at the Advent, and when coronavirus really started to take hold, there were a lot of churches that said, hey, will you ring your bells at noon? And I thought, well, we already do that, but of course uh, we'd, we'd love to do that. And so they rang them one day at noon as sort of a sign of hope uh, in, in the midst of despair. But then I asked, well, then what? Well, they heard the bells with their outward ears, but what did their inward ears hear? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ring bells. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't serve our community. Absolutely. But is your physical well-being more important than your spirit? Because a healthy body with a sick soul is an awful state. It's a damnable condition. And so we need to be primarily concerned, concerned with the inner being of those God has called us to love and pastor. And as a result of that, we actually care about the whole person. But rather that so-and-so would be delivered from illness 
or that our neighbors might like us or that people might see our church as a greater benefit to the community. Are you praying that according to the riches of Jesus' glory, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner person, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding, and that you might be able, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what I want on my yard side. That is what is of ultimate importance. And when Jesus gets a hold of your heart and begins to transform you, then you begin to love your neighbor. Then you begin to love the place in which you live. You love your city. You love your town. You begin to care for your people. But to simply care for the outer man and neglect the inner man is to simply care for someone who is perishing. It's not one over against the other. Paul is saying that they both go together, but the key is the inner person, is to seeing them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and not leaving them there, but spurring them on and encouraging them. I want you to know every single day how much Jesus loves you and that you actually are going to grow in breadth and length and height and depth in that area And that even as you grow older, that you know that God is still able to do more than you could ever ask or imagine. And then he sums it up with a prayer, not just for the church in Ephesus, but a benediction that applies to himself as well. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you feel the power of God at work within you? Because it's there. It's there by his Spirit. And is God being glorified in his church through the preaching of the Word and through praying and caring for one another? That's what Paul is trying to say this morning. The power of preaching and the power of prayer coupled together for changed lives that continue to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to understand just how deep His love is for those whom He came to save. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do pray that we would not just have heads filled with right knowledge, but Lord, that we would be given over to having hearts for you, and that as we pour out the word faithfully, that we would also be given over to pray faithfully for those around us, for ourselves, Lord, that we might actually trust that your word is able to do that for which it's accomplished, that we would understand the power that is working within us, this resurrection power that comes through you by your Spirit, And, Lord, that it would become a reality in our lives today, but most especially, Jesus, in the life of our church. That people might look at the Advent and say, there is a church that preaches in the Spirit and that God's power is made manifest there as sinners are redeemed and fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and their lives are changed. And even, Lord, our individual ministries, that we might be given over to faithfully proclaiming the gospel 
but also, but also praying for those whom God has called us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.